And then once you have it, would you mind standing for the reading of God's word? So we have a longer text today and a little bit longer sermon than usual as a result. Let me begin at verse 1. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on, the, on another, <clears throat> you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impotent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will run to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality. He will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first, and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first, and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. But when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, before we have us a difficult text today, a very sobering text, and Lord, there's no way that I can bring across or do the work in a human heart that is necessary. Only your spirit can. Lord, we all come before you fallen, sometimes with mixed motives for why we do things. We ask that you would purify our hearts today so that we may serve you and hear from you. We desire that you be honored in everything that is said. We desire that the name of Christ would be magnified because he is worthy and you are worthy. And Lord, we want to solely focus our attention on you whatever it might be, Lord, in our lives that would keep us from being an instrument in the hands of your spirit or for being receptive to what you have to say to us today, would you move it because of Christ and his work? Father, we need you. Speak to our hearts today. 
We ask these things for your glory and for our good. In the powerful, matchless, great name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. So let me start off today with a story that I've shared here before. Uh, if you've heard it, I'll ask to beg your grace on that for others who will be, it'll be new to. A number of years ago, I shared with you a story um, about my, an event that happened in the latter half of my undergraduate degree. Uh, at that time, I changed universities, um, and I was a commuter student at that point. Um, and so it meant that I traveled from my house on the northwest side of Houston to the southeast side of Houston, which is about a 45-minute drive away to an hour, depending on the traffic, uh, to get to school to take my classes. And so on this particular day, I was heading home. I think I had morning classes, and it was early afternoon, maybe around 2 o'clock when I finished taking the classes that I was doing at the time. And so I started to, to make my way home on the freeway. And as I reflect on that, what I would now describe as, I don't think I thought of it as that, that at that time, but as I look back on it now, I would say that there was pride in my heart. And that pride manifested itself in the action of pressing the pedal of my accelerator firmly towards the floor. <laughs> my car accelerated quickly as I got ready to merge from the freeway by U of H to get onto I-45 going north. As I was enjoying myself and full of myself, I noticed as I was going onto the ramp, when I looked up in my rearview mirror, there were some lights that quickly brought my pride to an end. I was pulled over, and the officer made his way to my car, and there the officer presented me with objective evidence about the situation I was in. He didn't really have to do that because I already knew what the situation was. I was the one looking at the speedometer. So I already knew it, but for the sake of objectivity, he presented the speed that I was traveling at. I already knew that, and then he presented to me the violation by saying, hey, this is the speed limit in this section of the highway, which you uh, definitely exceeded by several miles per hour. And as a result of that, he then, then did his just job and said, we want you to make a contribution to your local city. <laughs> and so I'm going to give you this little speeding ticket so you can make that contribution. A few weeks later, I found myself for the first time in a courthouse wandering way through this packed uh, people moving, bustle, hustle, going on to find a specific courtroom that I was to be located in to see the judge that I had been assigned to. A few things surprised me. One was the amount of people there when I opened the door and the room was packed with people and so I had to find a seat. People were standing up. Uh, and then the other thing that really caught my attention was my attitude had shifted. Uh, I didn't feel the same way I felt on the freeway that day. I felt a sense of nervousness. Uh, because, hey, if I had the wrong attitude towards the judge, um, ultimately the judge could then respond in kind and make an impact on my life negatively that I would prefer not to have. But there was another thing that caught my attention was the amount of people in the room, and although I didn't know why those people were specifically there, like I didn't know like why was that person in this courtroom, I did realize this after I heard the people before me as the charges were being read and they were appearing before the judge. We may have been there for different reasons, but we all had one thing in common. We were all violators of the law, and thus that's why we were appearing before the judge. 
Maybe you've been there before, a time or two, you were there because you wanted to make a local contribution as well. Well, you know, I reflected on this experience and I thought, you know, this was a foreshadowing event of a greater reality that is yet to come in the future for all of humanity. We must all stand before God. And like that courtroom, when I opened the doors and I was surprised to see the room packed with people, just many violators like myself, so it will be on that day, except the room will be fuller. For from Adam and Eve's first time on earth to the last Adam who will live on planet earth, all will appear before God. The courtroom will be packed. In this portion of scripture we have before us today, Paul is going to, by way of making a, a different argument, give us a picture, a glimpse into that final day in God's courtroom. And though he's, he's making an argument in a different direction, he's going to, by, way, by mentioning some of the things about what's going to happen, tell us what we ought to expect. And I find this as a human beneficial. I find it beneficial, one, so that I might adjust my expectations and then, because I have life and breath now, I might, if need be, alter my direction of course in life. So last week, if you didn't get a chance to hear Mike B's sermon, I'd encourage you to do that. He did a masterful job of closing out chapter one. And by closing out chapter one, he brings a change of audience or perhaps who he's focusing on to a new direction in chapter two. If you remember the last three messages, we've been mainly talking about Gentile society from a Jewish perspective in the first century and how the non-Jewish people of the world lived in the world and how the Jews uh, had this perspective about how they were living their lives. And Paul laid out some of that for us in detail, gave us some ideas about what was going on in his world to the in that day, which doesn't sound too different than a lot of things that are going on in our world today. Now, because we do have 16 verses, I want to, in the time that we have, frame these out, borrowing from John Stott's outline to help us digest the material that we have here. There's more information in the text than what I can present in the time that we have. Now, John Stott, of course, about these verses, he had four points. I just want to borrow three of them uh, as the outline part of the text. And this has become my pattern in this sermon series. I've been giving you the points up front. I don't usually do that, always do that, because it doesn't always serve the text well. But for these texts, I'm going to do that again. So let me just give you the points right up front that we're going to draw out as Paul addresses some other issues. One, God's judgment is inescapable. Two, God's judgment is impartial. And finally, God's judgment is just. God's judgment is inescapable, God's judgment is impartial, and God's judgment is just. Let's take each in turn. First, God's judgment is inescapable. So to kind of get a, a feel for the style of what Paul is doing in this text, and he will do throughout Romans as he is using a style of writing, it would be best for us to kind of imagine that Paul is in a conversation with another person. And that's why I use this picture here, that Paul is sitting down having a one-on-one -on -one conversation with another person. I would say that this person is another Jew. 
Now, you might ask, in light of the fact that we talked about at the beginning of this series, kind of what the church most likely looked like from the evidence that we have. And we kind of talked about this idea that most likely the church was comprised of mostly Gentiles, here thinking of Romans and Greeks and other people who had been subsumed into the Roman Empire, who had now been living in the city of Rome, and there was probably a small, a small pocket of Jews who made up the church. So why would I think that if the majority were Gentiles? Dr. Harold Kahn gives us four solid reasons for why we are to lean in this direction. Let me share those with you. First, he says, the singular pronoun you is used throughout the chapter, and in Romans 2.17, it clearly refers to a Jew. Now, for us in English, we don't have a plural version of the word you unless you're from the south. I guess in the northeast, there's one up here, too. I heard it. But, like, you know, if we had a Texas version of the Bible, in some texts, you would find the word y'all, and that's what you would know. You'd be like, y'all, so maybe they'll do a Texas translation in the future, and that'll clear it up. But in this case, on this particular instance, it's the singular you, which is nice. So that's what we have. Second, he says, the issue of the law is brought up in connection with this individual, and we will see that. So the law here referring to the Mosaic law, or the law of God given through Moses. Third, the description of individual of this individual matches Paul's description of the Jews, as we'll see later in the text, uh, and especially in chapter 10, verse 21. And then finally, throughout the book, of Romans, Paul only addresses two audiences, Jews and Gentiles. That's it. Those are the only two groups that he has in mind, Jews or Gentiles. So in light of that evidence, we lean towards, and I would say that the person that Paul is having this imaginary conversation with is another Jewish person. And this, even though this is an imaginary person, it represents real people with real ideas and concepts, and he's using this style of writing to stand in for them, to dialogue and deal with some of what I would say ultimately comes out to be errant ways of looking at the world. So one of the things that scholars do is look at other writings around the time of Paul to see if there is any overlap. And there seems to be with other Jewish writings where Paul seems to, at least in chapter one and perhaps here, and chapter 2 seem to be reflecting the thought of some of other Jewish writings during the Second Temple period. One specifically that is mentioned often is the wisdom of Solomon and a couple of other works that are similar to that. And the kind of perspective that is presented in that work uh, is this idea that the Jews on the final day of judgment would receive a type of favoritism for God so that they would be treated differently in the judgment, maybe given more leniency than the, than the Gentiles when it came. And now you might ask, well, why would they come to that conclusion or why would they start to lean in that direction? It is because of their unique position among the peoples of the earth. Think about it. They are the elect people of God. When they're coming out of an Old Testament understanding, it was Israel who was elect, not the Gentiles. And because of that, they had been given the law of God through the prophet Moses. And on top of that, they also had the sign that they were in relationship, covenant with God by way of Abraham in the form of circumcision. So this indicated that they were unique and special from all the other peoples of the world and had a special relationship with the creator living God that was different than all the other Gentiles, which led to this idea that God would treat us differently on the final day. And that seems to be the perspective of the person that Paul is having this 
imaginary conversation with. Now, some hold that, that Paul's ultimate goal was to actually get to this and that what he talks about in chapter 1 was just to set the table for where he's really trying to go and who he's really trying to deal with. Some believe that what he's doing here is one is starting off by coming to a common ground of agreement so that he could win the audience that he wants. In the sense, hey, we're going to talk about a difficult topic, so I'm going to start off with things that we both agree on. Gentiles, bad. They do bad stuff. They deserve God's judgment. The idea of this Jewish person would be, yes, amen, Paul, you're on my team. I like you. You, you see the world the same way I see the world. Let's get together, brother. That's kind of the concept. It's almost reflective of what Amos did in his book, where he kind of talks about the Gentile nations almost like a little circle, and then he comes into where he really wants to talk about Israel. Or the same kind of approach. Do so you remember that Nathan did with David when he had that whole issue of sin in his life? He didn't, like, come out right at him and be like, David, man, what were you thinking? He, like, came at him and was like, I got a little story for you, you know? Let me just tell you this little story. And, you know, let's, let's see. David's, like, all on board, and he, like, drops the hammer on him at the end, and, like, you the man. It's like, what? How'd you just turn it on me like that? Right? <laughs> it seems like Paul may be doing the same thing here in this text. He's going to drop the hammer. We know that because the main word in the text throughout it and the concept that we see running through these verses is one idea, judge or judgment. Now, the person across from the table is what would be described from a human standpoint as most likely a moral person, a moral Jewish person who could easily see the sins of the Gentiles, all those things that he's listing in chapter 1. They're like, yeah, bad, breaking God's commands, death, judged rightly. That's it. Violated God's law. But Paul turns the tables metaphorically on his person that he's having this conversation with to point out the hypocrisy of doing that. Notice in verse 1 what he accuses him of. He says, wait a minute, wait a minute, slow down. Hey, you rightly do judge that what they've done is wrong, but the problem is you do the same things. And so he says, look, in the process of you saying, hey, those Gentiles out there, bad, deserving God's judgment, doing wrong, those things are wrong. Then when you say the same thing and you bring judgment on yourself, because if you're saying that's wrong and you're doing it, then it means it's wrong for you as well. Now, Paul does not likely, most likely have all of the Gentile sins in mind, but some of them specifically that we see in the latter part of the chapter. Let me give you a few ideas of probably things that this moral person was going on in their life, but they had a sense of morality compared to other human beings. Sins like what he talked about, pride, greed, gossip, slander. And then in the latter part of chapter 2, he's going to raise the ideas of adultery and perhaps even this idea of envy. And Paul does say God does rightly judge people because they violate his law. Look, the policeman was not doing wrong when he pulled me over. It, was like he was, it wasn't just like he was just like out there for fun, like, hey, I just need something to do right now. I'm bored. Let me just pull this car over, right? I was doing something wrong, and that's why I ended up in the situation that I, that I was in. Same thing here. God is just not arbitrarily just slapping judgment on people. It's because people have done something that, bring his judgment, that brings his judgment upon them. And notice the sobering question that he asks in verse 3. Let me paraphrase it for you. He's saying to his partner across the table, like as he's reasoning with this person, he says, look, 
if you think that what they did is wrong and you're saying that they sin and you sin also and you don't think that they're going to escape God's judgment, then why would you think you would be exempt if you're doing the exact same things? Well, to give us a kind of idea of what should be expected as the answer from this person across the table, we simply just need to reflect on what the Old Testament says. Let me give you one passage, Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 3. Here God is speaking himself, and he says, Behold, all souls are mine. So God is saying, listen, all human life, every human that ever existed, I'm the owner of it. I'm owner of that life because he has given that life. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. In light of this text and in light of Paul's questions, then we must conclude that the question for the moral person sitting on the other side of the table is that they are under the same sentence as the Gentiles that they condemn. When we read verses 4 and 5, we see that this type of person is living under a certain assumption about life. They believe that because God has not acted against their sin immediately, because God has been patient with them, that that means that they should have a license to sin. So they're interpreting this idea that God hasn't got them, you know, like the old adage that lightning's going to fall from the sky and hit you, right? They're like, well, nothing has fallen from the sky. I'm good. I just keep sinning. God's not doing anything. We must be okay. Let me just keep doing it. Paul says, no, you've misinterpreted God's patience. Instead, the way you ought to view it is this way. The reason God hasn't gotten you yet is because God is patient. And the reason why he's patient is so that you can have time to turn. You can repent. Have a change of mind about the way you're living that shows up as evidence in your lifestyle. Now, why is the person most likely across the table unwilling to change? Notice what he says in verse 5. He tells us that this person has a heart issue. He uses the language that their heart is hard or stubborn. There is not a willingness to go in a different direction. So Paul presses home this point that anyone who sins will ultimately fall under God's judgment. And, and he has laid out a scale for us. From on one side, we have the immoral Gentile who indulges in sin. No thought of God falls under God's judgment. You have the somewhat moral Jew over here who still sins but sees themselves as moral and superior to perhaps others and anyone in between and he says judgment still falls. So no one escapes God's judgment who sins because God's judgment is inescapable. So how might we apply this considering the fact that this is not written to Gentiles, which I would gauge and guess that probably most of you in this room are like me, you're in the Gentile group. And Paul's not talking to us talking to a Jew, how might this be applied or what might be an implication for us? I, I would draw this implication, might I say. So if Jews who have a unique, unique status with God, that is those things I mentioned like being elected by him, will find no escape from his judgment on account of sin, then how much more should Gentiles expect not to escape? Now, this has played out in ministry for me over the years in various ways. I've talked to people who've been church attenders, and they're living in a lifestyle of sin, and you're trying to warn them about that. And they may attend church, come in and out. They may be around the church and the things of the church, and you're trying to talk to them about how they're living and the direction that their life is going in, which seems to be away from God, despite their 
church attendance. Sometimes in response, people have given me various answers. Sometimes people have appealed to the fact that they've grown up in a Christian home. Others on times, they have appealed to their church attendance, even if it's sporadic. Sometimes they appeal to things like church service. I was in the choir, served on the usher board. I was even a deacon in the church at one point. And sometimes they will appeal to the fact that God is aware of their intentions. They'll say things like, yeah, I know, but God knows my heart and where it is. As if any of these things will shield them from judgment. If the elect nation having the law and circumcision did not, that did not shield them from facing judgment, then no thing that we might look to will grant us reprieve or exemption on the day of judgment. I think the point that I will walk away from this with, if you're one of those people, is repent from your sin. Perhaps you view yourself as a moral person, but the sins that are in your life are things like pride, greed, envy, gossip, slander, maybe some form of immorality or theft. And then I would say to the believer who, or professing believer who has adopted the attitude that we'll get to in Romans chapter 6 that says, listen, Jesus died for my sins. He paid for them all. I can just sin. It's good. Jesus got me covered. I'm going to just do it. I would say you're viewing the sacrifice of Jesus wrongly. We'll get to that in Romans 6. So that's point one. Second thing I want to bring out from the text, God's judgment not only is inescapable for Jew and Gentile alike, but God's judgment will be impartial. God's judgment will be impartial. So in contrast to his opponent's view, Paul is going to assure this person, and by way of this imaginary person, his audience there in Rome, that God is not going to play favorites in the final day of judgment. God's not going to grant a special leniency to the Jews instead of the Gentiles. They're not going to receive some favor status. Everyone is going to be judged on the same standing before the judge. And to show that he is impartial, he's going to use the same standard for everyone. Where might we find the standard? Well, Paul just tells us right in the text, right in verse 6. So let's look at that together. He will render each one according to his works. So Paul says here just plainly, the standard that will be used on that day will be God will judge everybody by their works. Works. Now, scholars here believe that Paul is quoting from Psalm 62 and from Proverbs 20, 24. If you haven't read those lately, let me just recite those for you so that just to uh, recall them to your memory. So I'm going to quote verse 11 to give the context for uh, verses 11 and 12 in Psalm 62. Here we find the psalmist saying, once God has spoken, twice I've heard this, that power belongs to God, and that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. Proverbs 24, 12, if you say, behold, we did not know this, does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does he who not, so does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it, and will he not repay man according to his work but that's not the only place that we find this in the old testament it's in several places let me give you a couple other examples jeremiah chapter 17 here the lord speaks himself he says i the lord i search the heart i test the mind to give every man according to his ways according to the fruit of his deeds 
He repeats that thought in chapter 32, verse 19. We are quoted from Ezekiel chapter 18, and later in that text, God is going to say something similar. But first, God gives us this hypothetical situation. He talks about three generations of people. He talks about this father, and he talks about the way that he lives his life. Then he talks about his son, and his son kind of rejects his father's way of life, and he's like, my dad, I don't like the way he lived his life. I'm going to live my life, and I'm going to do me. It's going to be about me. So he lives his life in a different way, away from God. His grand, his, then he has a son. His son looks at his dad's life and his grandfather's life, and he says, yeah, dad's life, I think that was a bad decision. Granddaddy had it right. I'm going to live like granddaddy. So he lives his life like granddaddy. And at the end of that, God sums all this up, and he says this. Therefore, I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone here with a focus on the individual according to his ways, declares the Lord. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest your iniquity be your ruin. Somebody's probably thinking to themselves right now, slow down, brother. You in the Old Testament. We people of the New Testament. Come on over with us to the New Testament. You didn't get the memo. Fine. Point taken. Let me take you to Jesus. Here's what Jesus said when he talked about the final day of judgment. Matthew chapter 16, verse 27. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father. Then he will repay each poor person according to what he has done. This thought of Paul that he raises in Romans is not an isolated thought. This just kind of runs through his thought. Let me give you another example of that. When he writes to the church of Corinth, Paul says this to believers. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And I could go on quoting passages for you to bolster my case, but I think you get the point. This idea is firmly rooted in Scripture. God will judge everyone based on what they have done. That's the impartial standard for the final day of judgment. In verses 7 through 10, Paul is going to give us the criteria and the verdicts that will be pronounced on that day. And every person is going to get one or two. There's only two. I know we as Americans like multiple options. I don't want just chocolate or vanilla. Give me strawberry. Give me some butter pecan. I want to like have a whole thing. I want Baskin and Robbins, 31 flavors. Two. That's it. Let's go back and look at them. Verse 7 of Romans chapter 2. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. I like the way the NASB quotes uh, or translates the verse 7. Let me read that to you. And it says, to those who by perseverance in doing good, Seek for glory, honor, immortality. And here the idea from the verb that's used earlier, he will render eternal life. Two options. God's going to either give a person eternal life, which we notice here in the text is described by some other words such as glory, honor, peace, and immortality, or God will give wrath, fury, tribulation, and distress. So how does one end up in the preferred group of eternal life versus the second group of wrath? 
Notice how he describes why they end up in the first group rather than the second group. The eternal life group are described as those who are patiently persisting in doing good. The way that he uses the word here has a, a more of a whole life concept in view. Now, what about those in the wrath group? He describes them, notice in the text, as self-seeking, disobedient to the truth. They do like to obey unrighteousness, and they like to do evil. So what about this word self-seeking here? What is the idea? Dr. Moo quotes as he looks at the usage before the New Testament in Aristotle, and he says this. It's only, the pre, the, it's only pre, pre-New Testament occurrences are in Aristotle where it designates the attitude of someone who seeks political office for private gain rather than public good. So self-seeking, the person who seeks to get in office to benefit themselves with no thought of others. That's what it means to be self-seeking. So the driving force in this person's life is one who is personally interested, not God-focused, not other-focused, me-focused about life and the things that I want. And that's the driving thing in their life. And by means of that, they then become convinced of, persuaded that doing certain unrighteous deeds are okay because the ends, I mean, the means serve the end to get what I want. And so they're willing to engage in these types of things. By way of contrast, we might imply that the eternal life group then are the opposite. They're not self-seeking. They obey the truth, which falls into the category of good. If we look at the previous verses where he talks about this person's heart, perhaps the good also implies a humble heart instead of a hard heart and a repentant life instead of an unrepentant life. What's Paul's point? He states it clearly in verse 11. Notice what the text says. For God shows no partiality. To the person sitting across the table who thinks that they're going to receive favoritism on that day, he says, no, both Jews and Gentiles alike will face the same impartial standard of God on the day of judgment and be rewarded accordingly. What might be one of the implications of this? The Apostle James states it clearly. Listen to what James says. My brothers, and perhaps we would say sisters as well, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Because God judges without partiality, so should his people. One of the things that James warns against is this idea that we judge based on appearance and we treat people based on that. So James warns about the church or individual believers falling into this area of sin where we look at people who might have resources and see them as beneficial to us, and so we treat them in special ways. But then we judge another person who does not look like they can benefit us and we shun them. Paul, James says, hey, listen, when you do that, you enter into sin. Be careful not to, to do that. Now, for some, I have raised a theological problem in the text. And the question that you're wondering about, you're like, okay, that's good. I heard about James, but I got another problem with you. Are you contradicting what Scripture says? Perhaps in your mind, a well-known passage came to mind, one written by Paul himself, and it says something like this in Ephesians 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. But didn't you just say that the final judgment is going to be based on works? 
Are you contradicting what the New Testament is saying? Are you coming with some other doctrine? Are you making something up? Are you trying to make this about works? Let me offer to you three scholars of the New Testament's perspective on this to deal with this theological dilemma. First, let me offer to you Doug Moo, who says this. Paul believed that justification in this life was perfectly sufficient for deliverance from wrath at the judgment. On the other hand, we cannot ignore the serious warnings addressed to Christians about the importance that their works will have at the final judgment. He references a few passages here, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 2 Corinthians 5, which I read, James chapter 2, which I just referenced, Matthew chapter 12, Matthew chapter 25. Now, some would seek to reconcile these by attributing different purposes to the initial judgment of justification and the final judgment. Others, by attributing the two strands of teaching to two different audiences or different purposes. But none of these is completely convincing. Without being involved in the intricacies of theological nuance, and they are important here, we would follow those who maintain that justification by faith, granted the believer in this life, is sufficient cause of those works that God takes into account at the time of judgment. The initial declaration of a believer's acquittal before the bar of heaven at the time of one's justification is infallibly uh, confirmed by the judgment according to works at the last judgment. Dr. Tom Schreiner puts it in these words. He says, autonomous works are rejected, but works that are the fruit of the Spirit's work are necessary to be saved. Paul isn't speaking about perfect obedience, but of obedience demonstrating that one has been transformed. This fits with Galatians chapter 3, Romans chapter 8 where the reception of the Spirit is the mark that one belongs to the people of God. The works done are not, in, not an end in achieving of salvation then, but an outflow of the Spirit's work in a person's life. Lastly, let me quote to you New Testament scholar Alan P. Stanley. He writes, In Paul, the only works that enable one to inherit the kingdom of God and have eternal life are the fruit of the Spirit. Same passages he references here, Galatians 5, Romans 8. For Jesus, the only works that are acceptable to gain entry into the kingdom are those done out of love and mercy. But even love and mercy are rooted in trust in God. Thus, ultimately, one must completely be dependent on God rather than one's own accomplishments. Jesus teaches that regardless of one's profession, if one does not demonstrate a changed life produced by God, one will not enter into heaven. Let me put it in Jesus' own words. Before he was crucified, he said this to his disciples. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. What they're getting at is the concept that no human, by human effort, can produce the works that testify that one has faith in God. It only comes by divine enablement. It is impossible for humans. And thus we must rest upon the work of Christ as the only means of salvation 
that he will cleanse us from our sin and give us the divine enablement of God's spirit, who the spirit will produce to us the works that are necessary, that will give evidence on the last day that we rest not upon our own work, but upon what Christ has done. When the evidence is presented on the last day, that objective evidence, it will say and confirm that either a person has truly trusted and rested upon the work of Christ, or it will show that they have trusted and rested upon something else. Lastly, not only is God's judgment inescapable, is God, will God's judgment be impartial, but God's judgment will be just. Now, Paul is doing a different thing here, but I'll bring out the justice part when we look at it and evaluate it. So Paul wants to show his opponent that the law will not be sufficient to have it for him to escape on God's judgment on the last day. And in support of this, he raises several thoughts. Let's walk through them. One, the law will not shield a person because God will judge those who had access to the law by the law, and those who did not, he will not. He will judge them by the law they had available to them. Two, simply having the law will not shield a person because it's not having the law or hearing the law that makes one righteous before God, but it is one who does the law. See, a person is not innocent because they hear what the law says if they don't obey it. If you disobey it, in that moment you are a violator of the law. You are a lawbreaker. And as James tells Christians in chapter 2, he says to them, hey, listen, if you have the law and if you break it in one point, you become guilty at that point of the entire law because in that moment you're no longer a law keeper but a lawbreaker. Now, if a person could keep the law theoretically, then a person would be declared righteous by God. But as Paul will raise the concept in chapter 3, humanity has this fundamental issue that will not allow us to achieve that end, sin. And so no one can keep the law because sin will not allow them except for one. There has only been one human in all of history who has not failed, who has kept the law perfectly and thus received the title of being declared righteous and that was the man, Jesus of Nazareth. And that's why he stands opposed to all other humans in history. For he did not fail where everyone else has failed. Three, contrary to what this person thought, the Gentiles did have a version of the law. Dr. Keener explains it this way. Paul probably here focuses more generally on the natural law innate in humanity. He has already spoken of God's revelation in creation, chapter 1, verse 20, included within humans, chapter 1, verse 19. And he also appeals to Greco-Roman notion of conscience in chapter 9, verse 1. Although employing it in a wide range of ways, Greco-Roman sources, including Jewish ones, speak widely of a law of nature. And even Palestinian Jews outside this widespread tradition seem to have believed that God had given laws to the Gentiles' ancestors in the time of Noah. If you were to look that up, you'll find that there's this, this, thing, this thing called the seven laws of Noah, which would include things like this. The law to not worship idols, not curse God, not murder, not commit adultery, not enter sexual immorality, not, not to steal, not eating flesh torn from animals, and to establish courts of justice. So that was the idea that the Gentiles had a law 
we might call the law of conscience, which they showed in their own laws by displaying and understanding that there was a difference between right and wrong. So Paul says to this person that he's having this conversation with who represents real people that they would be judged by the law they possessed and that the Gentiles would be judged by the law that they possessed, which shows and demonstrates that they understood that there was a right and wrong. Paul goes on in our last few verses to say one piece of evidence that will be brought in the court of heaven on the final day will be the thing that men and women most often hide from others, their thoughts. He calls it here the secret things. Look at the final verse of verse 16, and we'll find a surprising turn of events. So we've been talking about God's judgment, but notice who's going to actually be doing the judging. Jesus Christ. Jesus put it this way, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. So in Paul, helping to see that his Jewish compatriot who thinks that these special things that the Jews have will be a shield on the day of judgment ultimately do not. But in that, we also see how God's judgment is just. One of the first things we see, as Dr. Kine puts it, is that the Jew who has the law will be condemned of sin by the Mosaic law, and the Gentile without the Mosaic law will be condemned by the law of conscience. God judges people based on the law that they have available to them. Whatever moral standard was available, they will then be judged by that standard. We also see that God's judgment is righteous and that he judges people not just arbitrarily but by evidence. That's what will happen on the last day. Paul refers to one piece of evidence here that I have just mentioned. So Revelation talks about this idea of books being opened, records being kept. Perhaps one of the books will be the book of thoughts, in which God will reveal on that day as evidence against people their own thoughts. How they knew something was wrong, and when they did it, their own conscience convicted them, and yet they violated their own conscience. All the things that they thought will be brought to the fore. Now, Jesus has alluded to other things. There'll be a book of words, perhaps, where all words are brought into judgment, a book of actions, everything that was done in the open and in secret. God will be able to show that by evidence that his judgment is just when he pronounces it, and everyone will see and agree that God is right in what he judges because the evidence will bear it out on the last day. The other thing that I find fascinating is this is Jesus as the judge. Now, I might on that day, if I was a person who was in the other camp and I was worried about it, I might get up to Jesus, I mean, get up to God, if I was just thinking about God, be like, God, look, all right, I want to admit that I did a lot of wrong, but you don't know what it's like to live down here on planet Earth with all these sinful people. See, you up there in heaven. If you had had to live down here like me, you would understand why I was sinning. Now imagine saying that to Jesus. Jesus, you, oh, wait a minute, you did live down here. You were tempted in every way, yet without sin. I don't have any excuse. His judgment will be just. What might we draw from this as believers? Here I draw upon what James has already said to believers again. Listen to what he says to believers but be doers of the word and not hearers only, 
deceiving yourselves. Attending church services, small groups, Bible studies, conferences, gaining knowledge about God is wonderful. It's great. But if the truth of God's word never translate into a changed life, then there's a problem. Spiritual maturity is not measured about how much knowledge you have about God. It's measured in your obedience to Christ. That's what it's about. Let me close with this story. So years ago in my previous church, I had the chance, one of the jobs that I had an opportunity to do was to serve as the prison ministry coordinator. So that meant several things. One, it meant that I would coordinate volunteers who would go down and minister into the prison, and we were in the, the local jail there and several other ones, and we would minister to both the men and the women. And one of the things that happened to me that was afforded to me is often when we, we didn't have volunteers, I would be the one who would go and speak. Sometimes I meant to the women, but most often to the men, that I would regularly be going down, either with volunteers, but pretty much every Sunday at that time, I was going into the jails uh, and into the prison, and I was sharing the word, being there with volunteers, and we were ministering to people. And because of this repeated pattern of appearing over and over and week in and week out, I started to notice that there were certain regulars who attended. And I got the chance after service, we would dialogue and talk before they had to be there in the next place. And you got to know a few people, and so you kind of got used to seeing them each week. You would come, you'd see them, hey, how's it going? How did your week go? They'd tell you, ask you about how things were on the outside, how was life, and all that, and you get to know them. And then there was on some occasions where, you know, they would come to me afterwards, and they would be like, Rev, man, I'm not going to see you next week. But it would be with a smile on their face, right, like joy. And the reason that they were joyful and they were excited and they were feeling this, this sense of, of, of pleasure was because they would tell me, hey, this week I'm getting released, brother. I'm getting out. I'm going home. I'm going to see my wife and kids who for some of them they hadn't seen in years. And they were super excited. They were like, man, this week on Wednesday I'm out of here. I'm going back into the world. And, I, and that, that made me happy as well because I, I realized and also brought me this thought that, hey, you know what? They get a chance to be a part of life in the world and enjoy the benefits that we sometimes take for granted as free people. But they were excited because, you know what? The sentence was over. They were going to get released. They get to come back out into the world and live with all of us and enjoy the things we get to enjoy. And then I thought about this day of judgment. On that day when people show up in the courtroom of God, as Paul says, there will be a sentence pronounced. Either you'll be given eternal life, or on that day you'll be given wrath and fury and tribulation and distress. But there's one difference, one main difference between what was happening when I was in the jails and what will happen on that day. There won't be any date of release. When the sentence is passed, at that moment, you will then be given over to your sentence and there will be no future hope of ever getting out and being able to rejoin family and friends. There'll be no smiles. There'll be no day of hope because the sentence will be permanent. So what do I say to you today in light of that reality? Don't wait to get before Jesus to say on that day, well, Lord, let me get things right. Because in that moment, it won't be time for change. It'll be a time for judgment. What is all of this? It's ultimately saying that on that day, what will happen is that evidence will ultimately prove one of two things. Your life was lived in God and you were hidden in Christ. 
and your trust was firmly in him, and you relied not upon yourself, but upon the work of Christ, and you will receive eternal life, or it will show by evidence, by objective evidence, that you relied on something else or yourself, and you rejected what God had offered through Jesus. But the evidence will make it clear. Don't wait till the day to find out. Deal with it now. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the truth of your word, a sobering reality. Lord, not to condemn people, but to warn so that people might adjust their life right now. Because, Lord, it's so easy to get distracted by the things and cares of this life that we forget about what is most important. We thank you that our salvation is not based on our work. But our works will prove whether or not our faith is in Christ. And so we pray, Lord, if there's anyone here today who's not yet responded to Jesus, help them to respond today. Don't let them harden their heart. And for believers, Lord, if we're struggling with sins, may we see this, although we're relying upon the work of Christ, to deal with sin seriously and not take it for granted, not to play with it, not to coddle it, but to ask you, because we trust in you by your Spirit's work to rid us of every evil in our lives. Be that simply internal attitudes of, of pride and greed. Be that sins of the mouth, gossip and slander. Or be it actions in our lives. Help us, Lord, each day to look more like Jesus. Save us from ourselves. We ask you these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Would you stand with us? We're going to sing one final song and we'll dismiss you. Oh, holy judge.